Welcome to RBG Beyond Notorious. This is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the CNN film RBG. In this final installment, we take you back to the beginning of her life. And we'll hear from RBG's classmate, Professor Arthur Miller. I had occasion to work with her when I was a third-year Harvard Law Review student, and she was a second-year law review student. And I've always said over the years that had Ruth not transferred to Columbia, she might have been the first woman officer, possibly the first woman president of the Harvard Law Review. She was a mother then. And CNN's Ariane Vogue helps us figure out what it all means. Well, you look at her and what sort of her legacy. And I think what's fascinating is she's the rare justice who's going to be known for her accomplishments before taking the bench, maybe even more so than what she did on the bench. I'm Poppy Harlow. I'm joined throughout this journey by our chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. Thanks for being here. Hi, Poppy. This is it. This is it. Sixth and final episode. And we're going to talk about the beginning. We're going to talk about RBG's origins from her upbringing in Brooklyn to the challenges she faced as a young law school grad, a very accomplished grad, by the way, just trying to get a job in New York City. We're going to talk about her time as a co-ed at Cornell, where she met the love of her life, Marty Ginsburg, and what it was like to be one of nine women only in Harvard's class, Harvard Law's class of over 500 men. So let's talk about the beginning, the formative years for, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a daughter uh, of, of immigrants, a raised in in Brooklyn, nicknamed Kiki, and a mother who was extraordinarily important to her. And a life really shattered by tragedy early mm. on. Um, the, the, you know, she, um, uh, her father was a fur in the fur business, but not terribly successfully, particularly when the depression, the depression hit. And her mother was a bookkeeper. But in her teen years, uh, her mother developed cancer. It was an almost certain death sentence. And it was also a terribly uh, painful treatment. And 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 RBG's mother, uh, all through Ruth's high school years, was 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 being treated uh, for cancer. She also um, had an older sister who had died at six right. of meningitis. So, I mean, you know, the, the world was different then. I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, it was just, it was a, a tough, tough time. And it was, it was also the depression. And um, Ruth Bader, of course, that's how she was, that, that's what her yeah. name was. Um, her mother died literally the day that Ruth was going to graduate from high school. She's 17 years 17 old. 17 years old. And, you know, we can only really speculate what that really means to someone, a loss of that magnitude at that young age. But um, she, she, was, um, she was a cheerleader. She was an outstanding student in, in Brooklyn. But, you know, she was a serious person, and I think the, the tragedies in her life contributed to the fact that, that you know, she was there, – there, there has always been something a little somber about mm-hmm. RBG. And you, you did this uh, deep dive, fascinating deep dive on her for The New Yorker and talked to her extensively for it. Do you – I mean, tell me about what she's like when she talks about her mom. Well, I mean, it, it, it is – the defining experience of her life, her, her early, her, her early life, and, per, and and perhaps her whole life. I mean, I I don't have the psychological <laughs> expertise to to analyze it per, 
perfectly. But I think she just, um, you know, on the day that Bill Clinton nominated her to the Supreme Court in 1993, you know, it was almost the first thing she said uh, in the ceremony at the Rose Garden. Um, it, it, it is something that, you know, created a void in, in her life that, that, that could never be filled. I got the sense talking to her when I sat down with her in February that so much of what she has accomplished professionally has been uh, because of her mother and, and the lessons that, that, that her mother taught her be independent, but also for her mother, because her mother was very smart. Uh, Justice Ginsburg always says, but because of the way society was, she was not afforded the ability to achieve what her daughter could achieve. Here's part of what she said. One of her proudest memories was of marching in the suffrage parades to get the vote for for women. She was a voracious reader, and she communicated her love of reading to me. I can still remember as a child sitting in her lap while she was reading a book to me. You know, th- that that sort of life that, that Ruth's mother couldn't have, you know, I, I am a uh, law school classmate of Elena Kagan, mm-hmm. whose mother was a school teacher here in New York City, um, who was a brilliant, accomplished, difficult person. But she was Elena Kagan before Elena Kagan was Elena Kagan, yeah. but didn't have those opportunities. Yeah. And But she, you know, she could have a career as a right. school teacher. Ruth's mother, it, it's it's a generation young, it's a, she's a generation older, but it, it's it's a similar dynamic. And she she said all that separated us from a bookkeeper to a Supreme Court justice was one generation. And, and, it was, and the opportunity. Marty, this marriage of true equals, true love that spanned, what, 53 years and two incredibly successful professionals. One of the things that I thought was always so interesting about their marriage was they were both accomplished. I mean, we know who RBG is, but Marty was an extremely successful tax lawyer, later also a professor of tax law at Georgetown when he moved to Washington. But their personalities were so different. Marty was outgoing, the life of the party and funny and sort of a little, uh, you know, uh, you know, he, he, he was... Um, you know, he he would joke around, whereas you know, RBG is 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 a more somber, more person. somber, and and I think that was part of what attracted them to each other. So let's talk about all of this. Her her early years, her trying to get a job, uh, which is sort of an extraordinary story after being such a good student. Her relationship with Marty. We're lucky to be joined by Professor Arthur Miller, uh, who was Marty's classmate at Harvard Law, knew RBG very well, a fellow member of the Harvard Law Review with her, and a professor at NYU Law, and an expert in civil procedure. Wait, no, no, and- no. Can I interrupt you for there, <laughs> Poppy? I, wa- I want to just take a moment to talk about Arthur Miller for a second, because, I, you know, yes, you know, to to call him an expert in civil procedure really understates the case. Our Arthur is a legend in the legal business. I like that better. Uh, no, I mean, he really is a, the, the, the foremost scholar of civil procedure in America, and perhaps more importantly, the person who invented the job of television legal analyst. I mean, Arthur Miller— An important job for you, Jeffrey uh, well, Tubin. Uh, for, which is why I say that. And so, I mean, it, it, I've said this to Arthur, you know, not in these settings, but, but you know, Arthur, I am incredibly grateful to Arthur for inventing the, the field in which I work. And, and just, you know, he is, he is a—not 
not just to me, but to many people, a hero. He's, but he's certainly one of my heroes, and I'm delighted to be able to say that here. To, to hear all that, maybe I should leave now. No, yeah, I'm leave dead. while you're ahead. Thank you for being here. A pleasure. So where should we start? You want to start with, with Marty? I mean, you, you mm. met RBG through Marty. Yes. Ruth had not yet started law school. She was a mother. But Marty was a classmate, a section mate, knew him well. And as Jeff said a few minutes ago, the life of the party, always joking. And when I met Ruth, it did seem a bit of a mismatch because Ruth was so quiet, so quiet. People who worry about her health today don't understand that's the way she's been, certainly since law school. My roommates and I used to have monthly parties. We'd invite the two of them. Marty was literally the life of the party, and Ruth would be in a corner. Really? Yes, in a corner. And if you wanted to talk to Ruth, you went to the corner. But she was brilliant. I had occasion to work with her when I was a third-year Harvard Law Review Mm -hmm. student, and she was a second-year law review student. And I've always said over the years that had Ruth not transferred to Columbia, she might have been the first woman officer, possibly the first woman president Hmm. of the Harvard Law Review. She was a mother then. They had a a 14-month-old when she's doing all of this. In those days, believe it or not, you did legal research by opening up these strange things called books. There was no electronic research. So to survive at Harvard, let alone on the Harvard Law Review, you had to go to the library Mm -hmm. eight, ten hours a day. And there was Janie. Their daughter. Their daughter. Whom you babysat at the library sometimes. I, I, I... Take credit for her early years. I literally babysat Janie while Ruth was in the library researching. And just to jump ahead, Jane Ginsburg is now a distinguished professor at Columbia Columbia Law School. But let me ask you another question about about their life in law school, because as dramatic as it was with, you know, a young a young child, Janie, uh, there was this other extraordinary story of how sick Marty got. Yes, yes. I remember him, in a sense, being absent for a good deal of our law school life. But I remember our third year together, which would have been Ruth's second, he had returned. He was, again, one of us. Well, he got cancer that could have killed him. He yeah. got cancer yes. that could have killed him. So, so you know, Ruth is not only being a Harvard Law student, mm-hmm. not only being a mother— but she's caring for a desperately ill young husband, which, you know, I, later I've heard that sometimes when her law clerks would complain, complain about overwork, uh. she would be somewhat less uh, sympathetic well, given what how she spent her 20s. Which was sleeping about two hours a night because she would divide her time between her, her work, her, her, her studies— his studies, right, prepping him right. and taking care of their kid. Throw in the Harvard Law Review. Right. Because in those days, not only did you have to go to the library and read books, but you had to do it for about 40 hours a week as a second-year law review member. 
That right. was which that is was you know it's culture. In, in addition to your classwork. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Despite all of this, that frankly could have ended a lot of marriages, this amount of stress, this amount of work, this amount of incredibly hard things to confront, theirs was the opposite. This was a truly great love story, 53 years, true equals. And Jeff, I found that letter that she read part of to you. Can you, do you want to share a part okay. of it? Okay. It, yeah. It's, it's moving. It's, it's, this is the letter that, that Ruth found in uh, Marty's hospital room after he essentially went home to die after he gave up treatment. He wrote, My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life, aside from children, parents, etc. And I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I mean, you know, that's a wonderful sentiment for, for, you know, any husband for a wife. But also, Arthur, when you were in law school... The idea of two career marriages was mm. a unknown. unknown. Was it was it unknown? Yeah. There was a second woman in that class, and she made the Harvard Law Review, which in those days you made on grades. So that suggested that, like Ruth, there was a lot of gray matter in this other person. She was married. She dropped the law review because she felt it might interfere with the marriage. They had no children. So there's a contrast between the two of them. Mm-hmm. That's really quite striking. He would brag. Marty, I, I heard, would brag about how smart his wife was being on Law Review. Is that right? That sounds like Marty. Yes. There was, <laughs> there was nothing he wouldn't say in the complimentary vein about Ruth. There was nothing he wouldn't do for Ruth throughout those years in terms of her professional progression. But but notwithstanding this extraordinary um, academic record. She spends two years at Harvard Law School. And when Marty graduates and goes to a law firm in New York, she spends her final year at Columbia Law School. What's it like when she starts to move or tries to start to move into the legal profession? A good friend helped her get a clerkship with a very fine judge on the Southern District. And then she's in the job market, the private Legal market. The payer bills market. Right. The billable hour market. Yeah, yeah. And she's getting nowhere. Now, I was with, I think it's fair to say, a prestigious law firm at that time. And a classmate of mine at that firm and I go to the senior partner. And we say, there is someone clerking we had to, we, we knew at, the law school and on the law review, he is fantastic. She, and as soon as I used the feminine pro- pronoun, he looked at us. This man sitting on top of this prestigious law firm, he looked at us and said, you young gentlemen don't understand. This law firm does not hire women. That's what she encountered. And... and- I mean, is it possible to just ask why? Why wouldn't a firm like that hire a woman? Oh, it all seems so silly. Things were said like the clients wouldn't like it. Right. Uh, Maybe we don't have enough facilities for a woman. It might create personnel problems. All speculation based on Hmm. no experience. Ignorance. Ignorance is a good word. And we're talking about ignorance on the part of some pretty snazzy people. Yeah, well, 
This this wasn't new for her, though, right, Jeff? I mean, at Harvard, she's talked about this subsequently, at Harvard being one of nine women in her Harvard Law School class. She had to defend it. Here's what she said about that. After dinner at his home, he asked each of us to stand up and tell him in turn what we were doing taking a seat that could be occupied by a man. Sound familiar? I, I should note, though, she did, she, she's gone on to explain that the dean asked him this question. She says now not uh, because he didn't support women attending Harvard, but because he had to get these testimonials from female students to explain it to the alumni and the board who had their doubts. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think no, she's wait, just wait, being wait, nice. Wait, wait, wait. I'm an old fogey. That dean is the dean who opened up the Harvard Law School to women. Who was the dean in those days? Erwin Griswold. Oh, that was that was, that was Erwin Griswold. Wow. Great, yeah. Who was grizzler, dean? The the, who was dean for many many years? And a good dean. Um, maybe he was trying to learn. Maybe he was being facetious. It 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 was a what we would now call a politically incorrect question. Hmm. And what's fascinating to me in hearing Ruth on that tape is he made them stand up. Because that was the sign that I'm the boss here and Hmm. you will stand up. But that's that's a Hmm. microscopic Hmm. point. On the law review, Ruth was treated with reverence because we knew how good she was. But those were strange days because I, being in the class in front of her, I think there were 11 women. She had nine. And it was just very strange. Now I look out at any class I teach, and this was true when you were a student at Harvard, and I see a class that's 50-50. Just about. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I th- now it is, now it it is. is. Act, actually 50. I think when I was there, it was like 55-45. I mean, you, you could tell that there were somewhat more men than women, but it was, it was, it was pretty darn close. Yeah. Can you talk about her legal strategy? And she often... Uh, talks about how her mother taught her how to win an argument, which was not to yell. And she meant that in in the literal sense, but I think also in the figurative sense. And that is, you know, and we'll talk about this more with our next guest, Ariana Vogue, but for example, in Roe versus Wade, she opposed the strategy used because she thought it went too far too fast and would have this backlash, right? And she was right predicting that. You talk about her strategy being like knitting a sweater as a lawyer in the 70s. I think that's right. Remember, we're talking about the period following the great desegregation fights of the 50s, in which the NAACP and others used an incremental strategy. Take baby steps, but keep putting one foot in front of the other foot. Keep winning the short yardage, so to speak. That was her strategy. And in retrospect, it was a sound strategy because that is the way many courts would operate in those days. Uh, She was a master of detail. She was that proceduralist, which I revere. You know, we we are Mickey Mouse people. We we look at detail. Uh, But that's what courts like. They want to be told, I'm not asking you to jump off a cliff. I'm just asking you to look over the cliff. Mm. And that was a very successful... Strategy. Well, I mean, it, it's and and just to 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 jump ahead, you were with uh, Marty and Ruth the day she was <laughs> nominated to the Supreme Court by oh. President Clinton. Shh. 
Why? Is you not supposed to have been there? Why? Is that well, a secret? No, it's no, no. It's, no, it's, now it's, it's not a secret. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 we were all at the annual conference of the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, and it was breakfast time, and I was supposed to run a panel later that morning. And the breakfast ends, and Marty and Ruth are there and say to me, we're terribly sorry, we have to leave. We have to go back to Washington. And I looked at them, and I saw Marty grinning, and I knew they were going to the White House. But they couldn't say they were going to the White House. They were just returning to Washington. He, he had been campaigning for her to get oh, his nomination. Yes, yes. Every stop was pulled. And he was great at it. So what did he, what did he do? I mean, I mean that's that's something I've always heard that Marty, you know, campaigned for Ruth. Yeah. But, but what? I mean, how did that? Well, you may remember an ancient technology called the phone. I am familiar with that. <laughs> it's in it's in all the movies. Marty had done so much effective tax work in New York and in Washington for important people and important institutions. And Marty worked the phone. Hmm. And those people would contact the president. First, the president in terms of the appointment to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals and then Supreme Court. He was masterful. It worked. What will the history books write about your friend? I believe that... Ruth will go down as someone who picked up the the ball for women, first in the courts, and ran with that ball as no one else had ever run with the ball about women's rights, legal rights, legal equality. And then I think the court experience will cause people to say she was not the first on the United States Supreme Court. Sandra Day O'Connor was. But in terms of lasting impact, so far she is the greatest woman to be on the Supreme Court, and I think time will keep her in that category. I mean, now she has Sotomayor and Kagan as colleagues, but she broke so many barriers she was willing to fight not only for women, but she was willing to fight for all of the issues she cared about, access to justice, procedural equality, people. So I don't think there's much doubt that, that she will go down as a great justice. I think the academic community already views her as a great justice. Fair enough. <laughs> from Arthur Miller, you know, it's the legend, you know, it's the gold, the you legend, know, it's the gold from this. It's, it's not too late to take a course from me. You know? <laughs> Just come down I, to NYU and I'll teach you. I, uh, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> in I, all his free time. It seems like a, it seems like a good idea in theory. You can take a pass fail. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Arthur Miller, uh, honor to meet you. Thanks for being My with pleasure. Us. Thanks, Arthur. Take care. Stick around. We have CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue with us to tie it all together. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. 
Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Together. So our final guest is Supreme Court expert, CNN Supreme Court reporter, Ariane DeVogue. Ariane, thank you for being here. Thank you. Let's... Let's talk about 1993 on, the the impact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has had on the court, especially in those early days. Well, that's right. When I first started covering the court, she wasn't sort of the lioness that she is now. Now, that's not to say she didn't have a couple of big opinions. She had that big Virginia Military um, Institute opinion that opened the door, struck down the uh, military academies. Uh, all-male admissions policy. And she got that not because she was the senior justice, but Sandra Day O'Connor on the bench with her thought, this is an opinion that she should write. And she wrote it, and it was probably one of her biggest opinions. And in fact, uh, just a couple of years ago, she went back for the first time, or actually Mm -hmm. for the first time, she went to VMI 21 years later, got a standing ovation, uh, and a couple of the the women graduates would come up to me with tears in their eyes. Mm -hmm. But she didn't have a lot of huge opinions early on. Uh, She also had the opinion about Lily Ledbetter. uh, But it was only when Justice John Paul Stevens retired, that she became the senior most uh, liberal justice. And that matters a lot in the court because the court takes seniority very seriously. And uh, for the years before, she wasn't the most senior member. And when he retired, she stepped into that role. And that's when you really saw uh, changes uh, on the bench and you saw her impact. But, but, but just to you know, emphasize the point you were making, you know, most of her tenure, she's not been in the majority on the on the really big cases. I mean, she has she has been a liberal in a conservative time. It's not because she's a bad justice because she didn't have these these big uh, opinions assigned to her. It's because she was on the losing side. She lost in Bush v. Gore. She lost in Citizens United. She lost in um, it, the the end of the voting rights case in the Shelby, the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sort of like Thurgood Marshall before her, who was the great lion of civil rights, he, too, did not have a lot of great majority opinions because he, too, was in a more cons- more conservative time uh, at the Supreme Court. And, you know, when you, t- you you mentioned the Lily Ledbetter case. That her famous opinion 
was a dissent. It wasn't a uh, it, it wasn't a majority opinion. Now she correctly prodded Congress to change the law, and they did. And they and they did. But but it was, um, you know, I, I think our Arians, you know, making making the point that you know the, it, it has been her fate to be a liberal in a conservative time. Ariane, I think what? that's absolutely true. But I think her, you also saw her voice really come into her own when she became uh, the leader, the most senior of this, again, four-court uh, liberal. And and interestingly, Ariane, that was – Stevens retired in 2009. Uh, right and, after Obama took off. Right. And then 2010 is when Marty, her husband, dies. So, Ariane, you've sort of drawn the line for me before between both of those and how Justice Ginsburg came into her own voice in part, you think, because of those two things, because Marty was this larger than life voice and, and and publicly. And then she takes on this bigger role or bigger voice on the court after Stevens, but also in 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 in, in public after Marty dies. Right. She, she sort of comes into her own personally, too, in a way you've argued. Well, it seemed I was sitting uh, in the press section the day after her beloved husband died, and there she was. She showed up at the court. Uh, She didn't miss a day. She didn't miss a day with her cancer treatments. But you did see her um, come forward in a way that you hadn't before. And when you interviewed her, for instance, and she came on that stage and she was carrying the bag that said, I dissent, that she carries with her, and people have all this Ruth Bader Ginsburg swag now, that really came, I think it started when... A musician put her Hobby Lobby descent to music, and it sort of took off on YouTube. And young women, sort of their heads whipped around to see who is this woman saying, for instance, in the in the voting rights uh, descent, that uh, why should you throw away your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm? Mm-hmm. She really, in the earlier days, um, granted, she was in the she wasn't in the majority, but she was also behind um, uh, Stevens, and then she became the leader, and she uh, took over in in not only at the court uh, for the liberals, but uh, in the public. I mean, we've never seen a justice like that. But and and I think you know the the personal dimension cannot be underestimated. You know, we just spoke to Arthur Miller, who knew who knew Marty and Ruth in law school. He would say. Marty would be the life of the party and Ruth was in the corner. Lit, the literal corner. The literal corner. That continued for 50 years. Right. I mean, th- when they were out in public, mm-hmm. Marty was the life of the party and, and Ruth was, you know, very much uh, mm-hmm. a quieter presence. That changed somewhat after Marty um, a- after mm-hmm. Marty died. Now, Ruth did not become a stand-up comedian, but she did come out of her shell to a certain point. Degree and when I wrote my my you know long piece about her that was 2012 piece. in the New Yorker and you know I think the fact that you know she agreed to talk to me and she agreed to you know you know be very candid she about her CNN's life and cameras follow she, her around she lets film. and and and, and um, you know th- that all of that I think is indicative of a personal transformation mm-hmm. as well as her uh, changed seniority status on the court. So before we get to the term that is ahead, right, the term starting again in in October, um, let's talk about Roe versus Wade, because a lot of people are talking about that now, of course, because of the nomination of Justice Kavanaugh to replace Kennedy. Uh, Ariane, 
we brought this up with, with Arthur Miller earlier in the podcast uh, about how she there, she was an unlikely critic of Roe versus Wade, not in the finding, but in the process. Can you walk us through that? Well, absolutely. So that landmark opinion came down in 1973, right before she was on the right. bench. But in appearances over the years, she has said that. She said the opinion went too far, too fast. And she's not complaining about the result. That's what she agrees with. But she thought that the court at the time went further than it needed to because the issue was just one extreme Texas law. But instead of just invalidating that law, the majority called into question statutes really in every state. And Ginsburg, who dedicated her early career to women's issues, gender equality, she wrote all the way back in 1985 that she thought the, quote, sweep and detail of the opinion would stimulate the mobilization of a right to life movement. It would become a target. And she got that right because it has. And she thought the justices should have just put their pens down after the Texas law. And now look at it. It's, it's more than 40 years later. That opinion is going to play a big role in the hearings of Brett Kavanaugh. And she called it. Uh, yeah, she, she did call the controversy. But I, I mean, with all due respect to Justice Ginsburg, I'm not sure she's right about this at all. Um, I think um, abortion politics were going to be pervasive and ugly uh, no matter what. And and I think Justice Harry Blackman's opinion striking down all these uh, abortion bans uh, was appropriate and necessary at the time. And that, you know, there, there were women dying of illegal abortions in many states during this period. And I think, um, you know, m- many feminists uh, who revere RBG disagree with her yeah. about her think view about this. Uh, of, right. of Roe v. Wade. And uh, so so I, I think I mean, and, and and this argument about Roe v. Wade is one of the reasons that Clinton hesitated to appoint her in 1993 because the liberals were. Worried about? Oh, he thought she wouldn't. He be thought viewed she as liberal would, enough. She, exactly. That that was the that was the argument. The people who were opposed to nominating her in Democratic circles, they certainly appreciated her, um, you know, her service and her great legal career as a lawyer. But you know, she had just spent a decade uh, more, thirteen years, on the D.C. Circuit, where she agreed with just you know, then Judge Scalia, then Judge Bork on on a lot of issues, and had criticized Roe v. Wade. So the concern was that she would not be uh, sufficiently liberal. I think it's safe to say that that has that worry has not been borne out. But it was a real worry in those days. And don't forget when the gay marriage cases came to the Supreme Court. People said, well, what? Do you think this is too far too fast? And she she went out of her way to say no. I think she said it with the New York Times. She said this was different. She said the court of public opinion was different. But she has continuously, through her years on the bench, been asked about her criticism of Roe v. Wade. And she's had to explain herself uh, again and again, not the end result, but just how the court acted. So, Jeffrey, uh, if Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed to the court and serves alongside her, how much of what what she has uh, fought for as a lawyer and uh, subsequently written on and decided on as as a justice is up in the air? A lot, a lot. I mean, when you look at um, 
uh, Roe v. Wade. I mean, abortion rights, which has been enshrined in the Constitution for for forty plus years. I think it's it's in grave jeopardy. Um, I think Ariane pointed out that that her uh, that, that RBG's dissent in the Hobby Lobby case mm-hmm. uh, was one of the uh, real signal moments in in the creation of access to birth control right which is a case about it's not just about access to birth control it's about whether religious people can excuse themselves from the requirements that are imposed on everyone else by obamacare by by, in in that case it was by obamacare in the sense that that the hobby lobby company had to pay for birth control um in in a similar vein uh, we just had the Masterpiece Bakery case where religious people said, well, we don't have to serve gay people at, at our bakery. We're going to see a lot more cases like that where, where you know, conservative religious people seek to, mm-hmm. depending on how you see it, discriminate against people on the basis of religion. I think she's likely to lose a lot more of those cases, affirmative action, death penalty, um, campaign finance, uh, Citizens United and its progeny. All those cases are going in the opposite direction she wants. Because she had Kennedy on her side on those social cases on same-sex marriage, for example, but but not on her side when it came to campaign finance, Citizens United, et cetera. Correct. It's it's clearer where it's pretty clear where Judge Kavanaugh stands on a lot of it. In in those days, you know, those days, it's just a few weeks ago that Anthony Kennedy was on the court. she had a fighting chance in a lot of cases. She didn't win. She lost probably more than she won in these big cases, but she did win some of them. It's hard for me to imagine any any significant area of the law where she's going to have a fighting chance. Unless she once can Gavinoff. swing Roberts, right? Yeah, but, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is not exactly a blank slate. You know, he has a long record as a judge by now, and we know where he stands on a lot of these issues, and she stands in opposition to him. What do you think, Ariane? Well, you know, you look off this last term. I mean, the liberals came out of a bruising term. They lost in the travel ban, public sector unions, voting rights, arbitration. And then to add insult to their injury, after the final gavel came down and we all thought, well, that means he's not going to retire. Anthony Kennedy tells them in their closed-door conference he's going. And as you said, it's a seismic shift on this court. He's going to, he's a centrist, and he's going to be replaced not only someone with someone who's more conservative, but younger. And this, in many ways, is going to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, fight. And I know some of the justices were stunned uh, that he stepped down, because he may have voted with the conservatives on a lot of issues, but he was uh, their fifth vote on affirmative action, abortion restrictions, LGBT rights. That's how critical uh, he was to that side of the court. And that's that's all going to change now. Everyone asks Ariane, when is she going to retire? And when you ask her, she has this same answer. Do you remember it? She says, what is it? She says, um... full, full strength, she always says. She says, as long as I can serve at full strength, hmm. I'm going well, to... I heard after at the end of the term, somebody uh, said, oh, well, you know, she may consider retiring now. What's the difference between a 5'4 and 6'3? And I just think that's absolutely false. I Preposterous. think she stay on for as long as she can, and uh, she will fight uh, to the end. I can't imagine uh, that she would step down. And keep in mind that there were a couple of liberals, well-known ones, who were critical that she didn't step down during, during the Obama years. Like, why didn't you do that? We needed somebody younger. And she took that on, and she said, look, the way 
confirmation hearings are these days, you couldn't get somebody in who would vote the way I did. And that's why I stayed on. I I know that's her answer. I reject that reasoning completely. Um, You think think she just loved it? I think she loved her court. As she loved the court. She thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, and she figured she could leave sometime during the Hillary Clinton presidency. I, I think, you know, liberals love RBG for good reason, but she let them down by not leaving mm. when Obama was president. Yeah, but you don't disagree with they probably couldn't have gotten somebody on the bench. With not at all. I, do, I, don't, I don't agree with that necessarily. Most Supreme Court nominees get confirmed, and, and I don't and, – and so what? I mean, it's, it's still – vastly different than the judges they would get under a Republican president. So, you know, I I, I just think um, in in the um, in the accounting of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's complicated, long, amazing life, her failure to leave during uh, Obama's presidency will be a significant Mm. part of her legacy. Ariane, final thought. Well, you look at her and what sort of her legacy. And I think what's fascinating is she's the rare justice who's going to be known for her accomplishments before taking the bench, maybe even more so than what she did on the bench. Uh, I think that uh, she made it clear that sometimes women are put on a pedestal. It becomes a cage. She opened the door to these women at the Virginia Military Academy. She became the first real rock star justice, swag and everything, inspiring you know, women lawyers to apply to law firms that wouldn't offer her a job. And she really pushed to balance life and family. And we've never seen a justice like that. Mm-hmm. And I'd argue she's not finished. I sense we are going to see some real riveting dissents in the next couple of years. And she'll write them because she'll want those dissents to be the majority opinion mm-hmm. someday down the road. Now, mm-hmm. that's going to take a long time, but that'll be her goal, I think. Ariane, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This has been fun. Yeah. Thanks, You Steven. know, she's a good subject. This is a big life. It's a big life that she is very much still living in so many ways. I mean, you think of— I think she's living in the, all ways. In all, you think of the opening scene of the CNN film RBG, which I'm so excited for everyone to see. We got yeah. a sneak peek. but That's uh, great. It opens with her with this personal—her tra- personal trainer. She has a personal trainer a few times a week, and and she works out hard. It's like 20 push-ups and— it's, I mean— you know, one reason why she's so popular now, especially among young people, is she is a badass. I mean, she is tough, and she's going to keep fighting at uh, 85. At 85. Um, I asked this to a lot of our guests throughout this this series, but to you, I mean, look, you're the one who writes about these folks, and you wrote the deep dive on her for The New Yorker. What do you think the history books are going to say about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, I do think she is the rare justice whose uh, life before the, the she she becomes a judge is really more consequential, frankly, than than her career as a justice. I mean, you know, uh, and so I think that that is, you know, other than Thurgood Marshall, I can't really think of anyone else that's that's true of of, mm-hmm. of the hundred plus people who served on the Supreme Court, and and I think. You know, in many respects, as a judge, 
her legacy is the country's legacy. You know, if this is the first of two terms of Donald Trump's presidency, we're going to have one kind of Supreme Court. If this is a brief aberration between another um, Democratic president, we're going to have a different kind of Supreme Court. And in that respect, I think it's a... um, it's 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 an uncertain legacy judicially, but as a human being, mm-hmm. her legacy is just enormous. And as I hope we have illustrated, like really fascinating too. Like really fascinating, fascinating enough to make me leave my my five day old uh, to go <laughs> to go to go interview her. And I think about what's the one thing you know what's the one thing I'll tell my kids one day about that and. Uh, I suppose it is what a difference a generation can make. Indeed. Jeffrey Tubin, thank you so much. Thank you all for being with us on this journey. Make sure you watch the CNN film RBG this fall. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.